If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. Diana E. Anderson grew up in South Dakota, and after stints as an English teacher in Japan and a radio producer in Chicago, she's turned her focus to writing. Her first book, Out Now, is called Damaged Goods, New Perspectives on Christian Purity, and it's all about the intersection of the church and sexuality. Diana, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. So just to be clear, you are still an evangelical Christian, right, who's talking about the problem with purity culture? I don't consider myself evangelical anymore, but I definitely am still a Christian. Okay. I think that's interesting. At what point did you kind of shift away, like change what you called yourself or identified as? Um, probably during grad school. I went to graduate school at Baylor University, which is an evangelical Christian uh, university down in Texas. It's one of the largest in the United States. Um, and it was actually during that time, it was 2008 to 2010. So Obama got elected and things were shifting um, in the U.S. And I just sort of went, I don't think I really identify with the sort of Republican, conservative, evangelical huh. Christian mindset anymore. Interesting. And so um, so you wrote this book because, I mean, I, I'm so glad you did, because I think this sort of weird Christian obsession with virginity is at best creepy. <laughs> At, at worst, really damaging. So what what started your process to write in this book? It was part of my own personal journey um, in that I realized by the time that I was about 25 and I was single and never had been kissed that like there was something wrong with the, the message that the purity culture had sent to me, mm-hmm. which was that, you know, if you keep yourself pure, God will provide somebody for you. And I was just like, okay, that hasn't happened. So <laughs> I started exploring other things and started reading more about um, critiques of this purity culture and realized that a lot of how I thought about myself and how I thought about other women in particular was based out of this metric of shame and these ideas that, you know, we had to be good enough for something or uh, pure enough. So you would think before all this that if you knew a woman who had slept around and wasn't married— what was your reaction beforehand? I would think that they were going to hell, that they were bad sinners, that they couldn't possibly be Christian, and that any woman who did have sex and still call, before marriage and still called themselves a Christian was lying to themselves. So let me go down the list then. What if she just fooled around, but it wasn't sex? Was that also bad? It was 
bad and they probably needed to get things right again, but <laughs> not yeah. It was like at what point actual... do you go from this is good, this is this is what I'm supposed to be doing, uh-huh. I'm pure. At what point does that cross over to oh she's in trouble? <laughs> that was part of the thing that made me start questioning purity culture because there really isn't a line. Like whenever we would ask about that in youth group, because that's a popular question among teenagers is where is the line what line can't we cross the response was always well it's up to the couple and stuff and it's up to you guys to decide and it was kind of like wait you're the one telling me this yeah and it was like well wait um so if it's up to the couple then we can decide to have sex or is there just yeah it's like like that garfunkel and oates song or garfunkel and oates yeah we're there singing like about the loophole (laughs) oh yeah like yes if you do it in the butt it's all right but as long as you don't have sex like the other way yeah well what i think is interesting like obviously i think the purity culture and calling a woman who has sex before marriage is like really messed up but what i think is really interesting is that people expect that when they get married and on their wedding night, like, sex is going to be awesome and, like, they're going to have really healthy, happy sex lives even though they've spent their entire life being ashamed of it and, like... And they don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) happy wedding day. Yeah. So do you think that that's a huge issue that, like, it's affecting people's marriages in the long term? I mean, they're getting married younger, too, right? Because of that Mm -hmm. in part. Oh, yeah. Hello, yeah, Duggars. I knew. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I knew several couples in college. Um, by the time I graduated, I knew eleven couples who had gotten married, and by the time I was twenty-five, three years later, six of those couples had gotten divorced. Wow! So it's a major part of that culture that's not really addressed and not really talked about. And like the official word is that if you're getting married just to have sex, you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah, but Tell that's that the only reason that. <laughs> Yeah. What's the alternative uh, then, yeah. you know? <laughs> exactly. And that's like the the one of the major contradictions is that all these people are getting married so that they can have sex in a holy way and it's actually turning out to be disappointing and more complicated and they don't know how to handle lack of sexual compatibility and all these different things and on top of everything most of the time these people are very young. And financially uh, unstable. So it leads to actually much more divorce. I heard a story a while back. has nothing to do with evangelical culture or anything. But the story was with all these politicians talking about the importance of abstinence-only sex education. When Senator Al Franken, way before he was a senator, he was writing a book where he wrote a letter pretending to be like the head of some organization that supported abstinence. And he wanted to hear all of these politicians' abstinence stories. Like, tell us how you were abstinent. Oh, Knowing full well, none of them yeah. were abstinent themselves, mm-hmm. and they're all hypocrites. And I wonder, so uh, the question I want to ask is, you know, these young Christians, like yourself at a point, were being taught that, you know, if you do anything, if you fool around, that's bad. Mm-hmm. How mm-hmm. many of the people teaching this to them followed that same line, do you think? I know there's probably not a number for this or a percentage, but, like, how many of these youth pastors or the pastors or parents, like, most of them probably broke the rules to begin with, but Mm -hmm. does do they not talk about the hypocrisy here? Or, like, no, you and, you know, mom and dad, they seem just fine, even though they might have fooled around beforehand. The the interesting thing about that is, is that's where a lot of shame comes in, um, I remember, and I tell this story in the book, I remember sitting at uh, Bible camp in high school 
And there's always like that one night where we sit down and have the abstinence talk and the true love weights talk. And this youth youth pastor who who was like 40 at the time. Um, <laughs> Unmarried, uh, right? No, married. Okay. Um, talked about how he and his wife, the only woman he'd ever slept with, had about three months before their wedding. So they're already engaged. They decided to go ahead and have sex. And like... It was a good 20 years later, and he's sitting up there crying about this. And I remember thinking, but wait, why are you crying? You, This is the only woman you've ever slept with. It just happened to not be before the wedding, not be after the wedding. It's still the person you and love. Wait, you are was, still with her. Wait, he was yeah. crying because he regretted it, not because, like, oh, it was such a beautiful moment. It was, like, a cry of regret. Yeah. Oh, Christ. He was crying because he felt <laughs> so still crazy. guilty about it 20 years later. And that was one of the things that just, like, it did, I remember in the moment I was, like, 17 at the time thinking, that's kind of weird, but I couldn't put my <laughs> finger on it. I'm sure Is other that... other students there like you felt the same way, right? Or did yeah. they all, were they all like, yep, that was pretty bad of him? <laughs> well, see, we're we're taught to respond the yeah. to to agree that you know well that was bad that was a bad decision and this is sort of your testimony of how it ruined your life or something but it didn't and it was just all this shame and guilt that he felt from this pressure to be pure that was that was causing him angst and i think for a lot of the people who want to teach abstinence now a lot of their teachings are coming out of that sort of regret and that shame that they feel and stuff and so they end up creating this sort of cycle of shame where they're telling their um kids and their students that you know you'll ruin things if you mess up or something because i felt bad about it so now i'm gonna make you feel bad about it and the stereotype yeah. i've never been so correct me if i'm wrong but the stereotype i've always heard about you know these youth camps or the bible camps is that mm. everyone's getting it on anyway <laughs> so was that talk before or after <laughs> well i i wasn't particularly involved in those groups yeah. but i do remember a friend telling me uh when we were in college that the first time he ever tried uh, marijuana was at our church camp. So. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Perfect. So here's one of the problems I have. Like, I don't really care if they just said uh, sex should wait until you're married, because I think you can make a case for that, even if I don't mm -hmm. agree with it. Yeah. But I do think when we talk about this abstinence-only education that people push, there's so much misinformation. It's not just mm -hmm. their belief that you should wait. It's like inaccurate information why is the church okay with that why are people i guess i don't hear about it as much why don't people especially younger people call them out on it well i think th the church it has this weird complex where we think that the world is against us and that anybody who's trying to point out um inaccuracies or arguments against things that we're doing for God is just trying to persecute us. And so that plays into a lot of the response to any pointing out of inaccuracy or any argument that comes out of that. Um, the National Abstinence Clearinghouse is actually in my hometown here in Sioux Falls. Congratulations. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and they put out this book called Abstinence 101. That it's is the only thing they put out. Oh, <laughs> you're welcome. Shit, you're welcome. Oh my god. Oh boy. <laughs> Sorry, I'll shut up now. Don't let Hammond's stupid jokes interrupt your line of thinking. 
was so good. <laughs> But they put out this book uh, for parents and for teachers um, that's basically a template for arguing for abstinence-only education in your school district and in your state and stuff. And it has a lot of very slippery argumentation. I remember going through it and writing, well, that's technically wrong, but, you know, um, they'll do things like conflate abstinence effectiveness like nobody argues that abstinence is the best way not to get pregnant right <laughs> like right. like if you're not having sex you're not going to get pregnant or an std <laughs> like that's just purely true. Right. true um but they conflate that success rate with the success rates of abstinence only education but ah. they do it in such a way that it's like it's in the same paragraph but it's subtly changed subjects so you if you're not paying attention that's how it comes across and so I think they, they they make an effort to source well, but they do it in such a tricky way that it um, they know the effect that it's having. Yeah, and they all consider it. Um, in my impression, it's a sort of end justifies the means. Sure. So thing. this is gonna come across snarky, and I really don't mean it this way. What? <laughs> is abstinence-only education. Like, isn't it like, don't have sex, and end of class? Because, like, I had sex education. They taught us things, like, about STDs and, like, birth control and stuff like that. By the way, didn't get pregnant, so... Congratulations. Nailed it. <laughs> um, but seriously, like, what are they teaching these... Cl- and, like, it's almost like a- teaching creationism. It's You're done in a sentence. Yeah, Move like, on. God, <laughs> period. God did it. You're done. And abstinence-only is like, all right, God didn't do it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm on a roll. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so proud of you. I know. Um, yeah, like what do what are they teaching in these classes if it's just abstinence only? Um, I went through my sex education was a mishmash of like abstinence only and abstinence plus education, which is where they teach you some stuff about birth control, but they tell you that it's you know not effective um, or that all these bad things will happen if you do choose to have sex. Um, and so it's it really depends on the school district and the organization that they hire. And this is one of the major problems with absence-only education and the federal funding for it is that a lot of the organizations that get hired to come in and teach sex ed in these schools are Christian organizations, mm-hmm. and they are taking federal funds for it. But they are just, you know, doing the message without the Jesus part, so it's okay. And I have um, heard stories about some of this where they're doing things like – uh, passing around a cup in a classroom, like everyone's mm-hmm. spitting it. And then the last person in line, hey, do you want a sip of that drink? And the oh. person will be like, ew, no. Ew. Well, that's what it's like if you have sex with someone who's had sex before. Wait, they don't really do that, though. Do they? They have. Oh, they do. Gr- <laughs> <laughs> that's so gross. Yeah. My youth group did um, gluing pieces of paper together and then trying to pull them apart. What's that Wait, supposed that to represent? What does that mean? <laughs> The bonding mechanism of sex, like once you're you're bound to somebody through sex, then you oh, like when you pull it, it apart, then. you leave little bits of yourself with that person. Oh. Okay, yeah, that person needs to use a condom then. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give them credit; that's kind of clever. But that's I mean, that's it's wrong. Clever. That's kind of like stupid. I see what you did there with the paper. Uh, I hate <laughs> that. So why I, I feel like this purity obsession—it's not aimed at little boys. It's not aimed at male adolescents, it's aimed at girls and women, and they have the creepy purity balls where they, like, pledge their virginity to their dad. Mm-hmm. Why? Why is it the obsession with women and girls? A lot of it's just plain-out patriarchal. Yeah. Um, there's abstinence, abstinence um, movements are very 
closely tied into complementarianism, which is the belief that men are the head of the households and wives are to be submissive. And one of the things that wives do in their complementary gender role is to make sure that they are a pure bride for their husband. Um, but that, not and, the other way around, necessarily. Well, Or at least it's not emphasized? Are, yeah, men are told to be pure, but it's, it, it's a different way. Nobody it's cares. Like, <laughs> It's you're not supposed to have sex because you will be ruining somebody else's wife, not ruining yourself. <laughs> I hate that so much. Mm-hmm. How all and everybody's cool with this. Everyone's like, "Yep, wife is yeah." Our, uh, so younger younger Christians, at least in my experience, and I'm not in that world, they seem to have gotten more liberal on certain issues, things like gay marriage. They are a lot less uh, anti-gay yeah. than their mm-hmm. than their parents are. Are they moving anywhere on this issue? Are they way are they more and more in your camp on this? Or are younger Christians still kind of on that, yep, purity, abstinence, that all makes sense? I think a lot of them are sort of on the fence about it, where they they don't like a lot of what um is being taught, but they don't quite know where to go from there. Sure. Because there's a lot of um consternation and a lot of anxiety in evangelical circles about the idea that like you own your body and you are an autonomous being who can make their own decisions and stuff because we're taught from the time that we're little that you know god owns us and and our bodies belong to god and therefore we have to give them up to him and stuff which is all really creepy sounding when you think about it yeah um but does so I mean, how much of it, and maybe this is, like, putting too fine a point on it, how much of it is, like, Christians or people who were raised in sort of a sex-shaming culture just don't want to talk to their kids about sex and are like, just don't do it, dude. Like, just don't. I don't know. I w- it would be interesting to see um, studies on how, like, parents talk to their kids about I don't even know how you would go about doing that, but it would yeah. be interesting to survey parents about how they talk to their kids. Cause I think that is a lot of it. That's certainly how it was for um, me growing up. I never got the sex talk from no. my parents. I got all of it in school. I didn't so either. My... Yeah. No, me neither. Thanks yeah. Google. <laughs> <laughs> that's totally yeah, true. The... By the way, <laughs> like that's probably yeah. how I found out everything. I mean, uh, talking to friends and stuff, but yeah. like, yeah, Actually, online. My mom did try to give me the sex talk after we saw. Um, do you remember the movie Now and Then? I don't know if either of you saw this. Uh, it was anyway. Is that a Nicole Kidman movie? No, it was no, with like Rosie O'Donnell and other people whose I names I can't think. Anyway, oh, it was about like four yeah. girls growing up in the '60s, and the one. This is not a great story, but the one's <laughs> mom like explained sex in the way of like it's like a flower and yada yada yada, and they're like, and from that day mm-hmm. forward, Susie was obsessed with flowers, and we never knew why. Nah. We were driving home, and mom's like. Jessica, do you really understand how sex works? And I was like, no, don't. <laughs> anyway, thanks, public school. Again, not pregnant, nailing this. So do you, I mean, so there, all of the facts say that abstinence-only education doesn't work. Like, there is, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. sure you could sway facts and figures to make it say what you want. But, like, really, every study we've seen says abstinence education does not work. Like, Pregnancy the people who get high. abstinence education are no better at not right. getting pregnant or STDs than right. the rest of the population. Right. Exactly. Roughly. So yeah. how are they justifying continuing this, like, failing program? Or do they not care it's, about numbers? <laughs> they really don't care about numbers. It's all ideological. And a lot of it is very, very political in terms of a lot of state representatives want to be able to say that and school boards want to be able to be reelected oh, in conservative yeah. areas by saying, you know, I supported this 
absence-only education project, and they'll often, when comprehensive sex ed comes up, there's often a lot of really inflammatory language that gets bandied about mm. um, and stuff. Like, I have, I have a Google alert for sex ed, and every day when I open it up, there are arguments in school district across the country about, you know, this new sex ed curriculum is going to teach your kindergartner how to give oh, oral yeah. sex uh-huh. or or something like that and it's it's a good political move for for absence only people here's a question that you might know the answer to because you're in christian circles when i'm online and i'm reading people writing about sex uh-huh. the conversations i tend to read about lately are about things like consent and what is consent, what isn't. It's about Mm -hmm. double standards and how we view women who have had sex versus men who have had sex. Uh That sounds very different from the types of conversations I suspect people are having in church about sex. What are Christians talking about when it comes to sex within Christian circles, within the church? And is it the same conversation the rest of us are having outside that bubble, maybe? It's not. Uh, sex talk is for married people and frequently like married people and your pastor will talk about it, but you don't Mm. talk about it openly. You don't talk about sexual problems. You don't talk about, uh, compatibility and you don't talk about consent. Um, and those topics just don't come up in the culture so much. Nope. I was never taught about consent, um, growing up. In fact, because I guess that. Sorry to cut you off. That almost sounds like consent implies that sex is kind of already a given, I guess. And then consent is an issue to go on top of that. Yeah. And if you're not even having oh, supposed to be sure. having sex to begin with, why would consent even come up, I yeah, suppose? Yeah, talk about it. Yeah, it. it's – yeah, I, I comment in my book that um, we're so afraid to teach girls how to say yes because we're afraid that they actually will use that knowledge. Mm. Is, and that's the entire conflict. They, they think if they teach girls like how to recognize when, and it's particularly women um, and stuff, but the, but the consent thing applies to, to men as well, um, in that if we teach them how to say yes, how to what, what it's like to be ready for sex and to own those decisions and to make those decisions, uh, the church is really afraid that they'll make decisions that don't align with what the church wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they just don't bother teaching it at all. I feel like um, I've heard kind of two lines of thought regarding sex after marriage, like within, you know, in the in a church-sanctioned mm-hmm. manner. I've heard that it's like, oh, once you get married, sex is amazing, and it's like a wonderful thing you get to enjoy, but you have to be married first. Mm-hmm. I've also heard sex is only should not be enjoyable. It is only for procreation. You should only have sex, like, if you're actively trying to have a kid. Are those mm-hmm. are, are those interchangeable in Christianity? Is one more, like, a Catholic kind of view? Um, it really dep- depends on what uh, denomination you're in and what sort of theological strain you're in. I grew up in uh, sex will be amazing after you're married and you'll want to experience it all the time and, uh-huh. and stuff. And it'll be great because you found the one person God meant for you. But I've also heard from others who grew up in Catholic traditions or other um, more conservative branches of Christianity than I did that sex is a, a duty to be performed only when you are ready for children and stuff. And that tends to tie in more with the anti-birth control sort of um, oh, yeah. attitude. 
What's going on with some of these Christian pastors who will have sermon series that where they're talking about sex? And I mean, there's some stories about, you know, the, the pastor in Texas who uh, was on a bed on the roof of his church with his wife for like a week. It's kind of a publicity mm-hmm. stunt for the church. But they're saying, look at how great sex is. What? Is that pushing this? Yeah, it's no, seriously, that, that wait, happened. Wait, wait, he was having sex on the roof? No, no, no. Oh. He was with his wife on the bed. Not having sex. Not having sex, but saying, look, like, we're on a bed together. Like, as a, let's talk about sex in the church because oh. we're hip like that. Um, but, I mean, you have these pastors who are saying, we're going to talk about sex in the church. What are they talking about? Is it that same, like, just, yep, after it's after you're married, it's going to be great? Um, it Again, it depend, It de- really depends on the pastor, but sermons about sex are a good way to get people in the door. Sure. Um, and, stuff. and so a lot of pastors like to do that and stuff. And they'll talk about specifically how sex is meant to be between a uh, cisgender man and a cisgender woman in a heterosexual marriage mm-hmm. and stuff, and talk about um, how God created sex and sex is a great bonding thing and um, that sort of thing. And in my experience, it won't, and it'll be about like what the Bible has to say about how sex isn't a duty. You're supposed to enjoy sex and you know how to, and you need to relax and let yourself go and, because that's one of the products of, I, I think it's an unconscious response to one of the products of purity culture in that there are these people who grew up being told sex is dirty, sex is dirty, sex is dirty. And when they're married, oh, sex is great now yeah. and stuff. And you can't flip that switch. Like it just, it, it's really, really hard. So um, we've got this older generation now that's getting married that's... Um, having sex and having children and and stuff and realizing that they're still thinking sex is dirty and sex is a duty and sex is bad in the back of their minds. So (laughs) this trend of pastors talking about sex, I think is responding maybe unconsciously, maybe consciously to that trend. I want to go back. You just said like when they're talking about these, uh, when, when pastors are talking about sex, it's a cisgender husband, wife, heterosexual Mm -hmm. couple. Where do conversations about things like homosexuality, polyamory, any of those other things, do they ever come up? How? I mean, I, I think I know how they talk about homosexuality, <laughs> but yes. I, I mean, does the word polyamory or any of those alternative, I guess, uh, for lack of better words, do those words ever come up? Do, are those things talked about? Um, polyamory might be coming up more uh, recently, but in my time, it really wasn't. Um, and stuff, and things like um, couples who uh, have like open marriages or uh, homosexual couples or any sort of thing like that was presented as like, well, this is against God's plan. This is, and there's also there's that like ew yuck reaction that we're supposed to have to yeah. it um, and stuff, and that's very much encouraged. Um, And so that's like the only time that LGBT issues ever get talked about. Um, And and only in a negative light, you mean? Sure. Yes, only in a negative light, and only uh, when they need like an example to contrast against uh, the good, holy, pure couple. Yeah. So. So, did you research um, purity balls and things like that in your book? Can you talk a little bit about sort of the rise in popularity of those? Uh, Purity Ball started in the early 90s um, in oh, Colorado. Recent. I didn't know that. Yeah, yep. 
the the purity movement as a whole, as a political force, is only dates back to like 1975. Hmm. It's not um, it's not really um, as old as they as they proclaim it is. Um, but yeah, the purity ball started in the early 90s with a dad who wanted to um, show his daughters how much he cared about the fact that they were going to remain virgins. Um, and that's really how it started. Um, <laughs> it's as creepy as it sounds. <laughs> yep, uh, pretty much. And there is there are balls for um, for young boys and their mothers, but those are called integrity balls. Because so. again, boys don't have to necessarily remain pure per se. Yes, I don't know. Integrity yep. balls sounds almost worse. <laughs> <laughs> it really does. <laughs> Do you think the church is capable of becoming sex positive? I think it is, but we have to work really, really hard at it and stuff. We have to be very intentional about being open and inclusive. And I don't know if I see the current American church getting there. Who's we? You said we have to work. Mm -hmm. Who's we? Do you mean Christians, (laughs) younger Christians? Yeah, yeah. I would say like my generation, millennials and younger who are growing up to be the pastors of tomorrow and to and having kids and leading kids. Are you optimistic? Um, yeah, about my generation, I think so. Yeah, and so there are still like times when I read like Matt Walsh, who I think is actually younger than me. That's the right reaction to Uh, Matt Walsh. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So there, there are those voices that are, you know, who are basically rooting for the same abstinence culture, the the, that sort of thing, right? Yeah, but I think they are slowly being drowned out. But I mean, they are doing their best to like put a cool guy image on, on mm-hmm. Christianity. but still, I'm a bad boy Christian. Yeah, but by the way, you should all remain abstinent and pure. Yeah, like they're still towing <laughs> the same line, but they're like, I've got a soul patch. Like, I play guitar. Yeah, and that's, that's been around since forever. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know there are a lot more women uh, Christians who are kind of rocking the boat on these issues, yourself included. Um, I can't imagine what the blowback is like for you. I'm sure you get a lot of nasty shit from people online. <laughs> I wonder, uh, one, I mean, is that is that the case? And two, what are some of the good reactions you've gotten from people as this book has come out and people have looked at it? Uh, the bad reactions, like, I have a tendency to, to uh, react to negative things, uh, by laughing at them like it's <laughs> it's the right reaction. mockery yeah <laughs> mockery is sort of how i go about it so i've been uh the the most prominent bad reaction i think i've had was a review in christianity today uh where a lady basically said that i'm a danger to the youth congratulations I was, yeah i was <laughs> i thought that was hilarious um <laughs> and stuff um and the good reactions are all so much more meaningful to me because it's women who write and say, you know, I wish I could have handed this book to my teenage self. You're helping me get over um, this shame spiral that I've been in. You're helping me to understand who I am. Mm -hmm. Um, I spoke in January, I spoke at the gay Christian network conference in Portland and on bisexuality, because I'm a bisexual woman and I talked about um, bisexual people in the church and stuff. And there was a lady who came up afterwards um, and said, you know, you helped me realize that, you know, I'm actually bisexual. I'm not what I thought I was, you know, because I didn't think it was a real identity and stuff, and that I have a place in the church and that, you know, I don't have to um, 
be afraid about having sex or or uh, or um, you know being a sexual human being and stuff. And so that sort of reaction is it frankly the best thing <laughs> yeah that's be really meaningful yeah. for you i don't know if this is going to even come out as a question i think a lot of atheists would listen to what you just said and they would scream they want to tell that woman like it's not that the church needs to expand to encompass you but you need to get the hell out of there yeah. i feel that's like a visceral reaction a lot of atheists would have like especially when it comes to issues like homosexuality mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. i and i sometimes have this debate myself yeah. do i want the church to be more inclusive of right. gay people or do i want them to keep being anti-gay because then more people will get the hell out of church and yeah. i'm not sure which you know i lean on that different ways what do you think i mean like you said you are a christian uh, you, I presume, want people to remain within the church, but is that mm-hmm. ever a pull? Is that ever a tension for you? Like, where is it better to be in the church and bisexual or out of the church altogether? For me, um, I, I, I respect and understand people's faith journeys, and like, I'm not going to sit there and if a friend is is, you know, thinking, you know, I might be becoming atheist. I'm not going to sit there and evangel- try to evangelize them back or mm-hmm. anything. Like, I'm totally fine with it. And I have, this sounds weird, but I have a lot of friends who are atheists and stuff. And we <laughs> talk about this sort of thing. We hear that um, a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and the thing is that that sort of militant, you must leave the church atheism um, isn't all that supportive to LGBT people who, for whom, um, faith and religion and that sort of spirituality is deeply important. Yeah. And so um, I would encourage people if they still feel their faith, if they are um, still wanting to be good, faithful Christians to work out some theology that works for them. There is theology that's inclusive of it. And there's an entire, uh, there are many churches that are yeah. LGBT yeah. inclusive and sex mm-hmm. positive and things like that. They're not the ones yeah. we tend to hear about, yeah. but they are exactly. there. Yeah. So, Do you think this is just a generational thing? Like, you know, 25 years down the road, this will maybe be a non-issue, a gay, uh, LGBT issues gay and purity thing. Like, do you just think they're eventually going to go away once this crop of old people dies? <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know that it'll go away because... Uh, history tends to be pretty cyclical. Sure. Um, and I point out in my book that we're actually repeating some of the same debates that they were having in the 1920s um, <laughs> when the, the marriage age was increasing and people were becoming, you know, sexually active before marriage and and all that sort of stuff. And there were and that's actually how sex ed became a thing because oh. it became a public health issue and stuff. Um, <laughs> and now we're re-debating that and trying to push sex ed out. So um, it's one of those things where it'll come up again and stuff, but I have faith that we'll be more prepared to uh, nip it in the bud well, and thank- approach things better. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for playing a part in that. And uh, we'll post a link. Uh, Diana's book is called Damaged Goods, New Perspectives on Christian Purity. And we'll, uh, yeah, we'll provide a link. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.